0: Welcome back to another episode of the official SAS to podcast with me, your host, Harry Stebbings at H Stebbings with two B's on Snapchat and brought to you by the one and only godfather of all things SAS, Jason Lemkin at Jason LK on Twitter. Now for the show today, I'm thrilled to welcome Fires Mahmood. Now Fires is the founder and CEO at Bluecore, the company that is transforming the way e-commerce marketers use data and automation to communicate with their customers. They've raised nearly $30 million in funding from some of the best in the business and past guests of the show, including the teams from the fantastic First Smart Capital and Felicis Ventures, just to name a few. As a result, they've enjoyed some rapid scaling, having seen the team grow from 50 to over 100 in just 10 months. As for Fires, prior to Bluecore, he was head of product at Big Door, and before that, he founded Game Day Tycoon, a fancy sports game that runs on Facebook. I do also have to say a big thank you to Jason Lemkin for the intro to Fires today, so I really appreciate that. However, before we dive into the show today, Algolia is the robust search API that allows developers to integrate lightning-fast typo-tolerant search into their... SaaS product. Out of the box, Algolia offers developers a powerful platform for building great search experiences by owning the entire stack from engine to server. Algolia free up development teams to focus on adding intuitive search that delights users. This is perfect for existing search teams looking to spend less time on maintenance and infrastructure management and more time on user experience. For small SaaS teams, Algolia is a perfect investment on top of your existing stack that requires no specialist engineers, and you can learn more about how Algolia helps SaaS scale search because now sasta podcast listeners can get one month free at algolia.com forward slash sasta with the coupon code sasta podcast that's algolia.com forward slash sasta however it's now time for me to shut up and so i'm now delighted to hand over to fires mamood founder and ceo at blue core good that's perfect okay i think we're warmed up Fires, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. A huge thanks to to Jason Lemkin for the intro, but thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Harry. Excited to be here. Now, I'd love to get started today with a two to three minute founding story of you and and how you got into the world of SaaS with Bluecore.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So quick, quick background in Bluecore. We're about four years old, turning four this April, but I've known one of my co-founders, Mahmoud, for 16 years now. We met in, in college, were engineers by trade. I started Bluecore with him and Max Bennett, another co-founder of mine, who came in uh, from the uh, from the banking industry. But the quick uh, version of the story is that when the iPhone first came out, we had to uh, build this app and get customers to use the app and nobody did and that's the painful way we discovered uh, the use of marketing uh, and we rolled our own marketing infrastructure that did triggered communications based on what customers did inside of the app and what they didn't and we and we built it and, and the app never went anywhere after that we built a social game and as you know if you've ever played one of those games like Farmville, they're very sophisticated in how they measure things like lifetime value who is engaged in your customer base and who's not, who's got friends and who's not. And they use all of that data to communicate better to their customers. So we've sort of rolled version two off our marketing decisioning infrastructure. And then a couple of years later, uh, that never went anywhere. I was working at a startup, talking to uh, some big publishers and e-commerce companies. And they all said that, you know what, I'm using companies like Salesforce and Oracle to do my marketing using these marketing clouds, but they're very hard to integrate. And uh, they don't deal with the large amounts of data because they were built for the last generation of, of uh, customer data. And uh, that's where you know the light bulb went off. And uh, you know one day my co-founder called me up and said, hey, I I just proposed to my girlfriend and his wife now. They have two kids now. So we're starting a company. We're going to do it now. And that was a Friday evening. So Monday morning, we quit our jobs four years
0: ago. And that's how we got started. What a fantastic entrepreneurial start. But I I do want to touch on you mentioned data there several times, and particularly uh, in relation to Farmville and how they use data. I I am really intrigued then as to your perspective on whether you think with the kind of intrusion of data into the world of marketing, is marketing now a science and not an art, do you think?
1: Yes, it's a great question. And I think uh, it'll depend on. On who you ask, one great quote uh, I heard from um, uh, from an executive uh, at Ralph Lauren was, "If we only used data science to do our marketing, then all we'd be selling is polos, and our brand wouldn't wouldn't exist." And I think it was a good representation of it is uh, there is a lot more science to it than uh, than you might think, but depending on the industry you're in, if you're a retailer, you know, there is a, a good element of your brand marketing that comes in t- into the mix as well, versus something like a where it skews heavily towards the science side, right? Because you're essentially creating this mythical world around a farm or around uh, this kitchen or something and, and you have users interacting around it. But yeah, I'd say it's it's queuing hard,
0: but it's there. there is a good amount of uh, art in there as well, especially when you think about brands that we work with. Absolutely. You say about brands there and very intriguing to hear about Ralph Lauren, obviously consumer facing. But in the B2B and enterprise world, to what extent do you think brands are, are fundamental to build?
1: I think it's super important uh, and, and and the reason why, and I, I came to this conclusion as an engineer, I, I used to think that it wasn't. And I've realized over time, even if you look at the space that any SaaS company is in, uh, it's pretty hard to figure out what exactly the company does, you, you know, looking at the tagline or the, or the positioning statement. So the easy way to figure out what a company is all about is to figure out what the, what the company stands for, right? And that's reflected in the brand. So, you know, when you think about, you know, Zendesk, right? I know it supports software, but I know there's a whole bunch of things out there. But at the moment I see Zendesk, I know it's beautiful. I know it's simple. And it's in an industry where I know that that's not usually the case with customer service software, right? Uh, so I think Zendesk is a great example. Um, you know, we use a whole bunch of SaaS software at BlueCord to do our work better. And as a CEO, I get all these uh, checks to sign off on. And I don't have time to like dive into the details of what everything does. But I have a pretty good understanding by going to the website and looking at a case study about like what? What is, the, what is the value of the company is this is this uh, easy to use is this uh, fully integrated and that If that's reflected on the brand, it's super easy. So, we spend a lot of time,
0: especially as of the last three months, uh, thinking about that. Remaining on the aspect of data, though, you've said before that you think it's fundamental to use data and not people to fuel growth. So, I'm really interested then to hear your explanation for this, contra maybe the archetypal SaaS play of kind of pouring money into a sales team to grow.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things that's happening with, as an example, using our customers is uh, we have two core data assets from our customers. Uh, One is customer information that we use, um, which a lot of platforms use. Uh, But the second piece, which is specific to our customers, is is the product catalog. And by by that, I mean we understand how a Staples has 4 million products on their site and how that changes over time. You know, we can be really data-driven around not a product that Staples should buy from us, but we can be pretty data-driven around how we can add value to them in a way that makes sense to the business. As an example, if somebody wants to drive repeat purchase rates for their customers, we can be pretty intelligent about how to propose that and our customer success teams and the sales teams can use that to directly add value as opposed to saying, hey, I have this new module. Why don't you check it out? Which is how, uh, you know, I get approached by a lot of the SaaS companies that we work with. And my question is, that's great, uh, but what does it do? And how does it, how is it going to impact my business? You can, you can turn that conversation around if you have enough data. I wish somebody came to me and said, hey, I noticed uh, your uh, uh, enterprise accounts are growing 30% of year over year. Here is a new way to think about it. Can you, have you imagined how that could affect your billings or collections, right? That would be a great conversation if somebody came and had that with me. So that's that's
0: how we think about using data with our sales and CS teams. You mentioned kind of expansion there of accounts over time. I'm intrigued, how does data drive upsells then and not seats?
1: Yeah, and one way to think, and maybe I'll give you a direct example. Um, Our company actually, our first product was the easiest way for companies to do triggered emails. So think about, you know, you're browsing on Newegg.com and you're looking at, uh, you know, this monitor that you like to buy, and it's not, it's not, it's a considered purchase. You're not going to buy it immediately, and. Three days later, the price drops on it, right? Uh, We have a way of automatically uh, triggering communications to you. Now, the beauty of that is that is a product that works in email. And, you know, last quarter, we introduced uh, a new product that can do similar communications on Facebook. And we also started doing some predictive analysis on that data set, which told us things like, hey, there's a percentage of any given Customers, customer base that could unsubscribe, uh, which means we can have a really productive conversation around. Hey, by the way, uh, we have we have data and predictions that indicate that you should not communicate to a, a core set of your customer base uh, on email because they will unsubscribe. And if you're an e-commerce company, like the email list is your asset, that that is your customer base, and we can have conversations like that that lead to a mutually productive upsell. So that's one example. In other cases, you know, we can have conversations like, Hey, I, I feel like uh, you know, from our conversations with you expressed that there's a certain customer base that is has a really high lifetime value and we have data that it's indicating that they're about to churn. Here's how you can use blue core predictions to prevent that from happening. So they're not essentially buying seats. They're buying outcomes for the business, which makes it a very simple conversation to have as opposed to, hey, you have
0: one more person using this product. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Does that make sense? It, it does. I'm, I'm intrigued, though, as you said about kind of the upsells there. And to, to what extent do you agree with customer success teams being engaged in the upsell process?
1: I think that they have to be extremely engaged. Our philosophy is that the upsell, uh, they have to be highly coordinated with this, with the sales teams on on communication and what the objectives of the customer is. But I fundamentally believe that all the upsell mechanics should live with the sales team because you never want, at least in our perspective, I would never want our customer success team thinking about, hey, can I add more revenue or top line or upsell an existing customer? I mean, over time, they should totally understand that if we're driving revenue, for these customers, which we do, that it'll lead to an upsell, but we don't ever want them thinking about that number. We just want them, especially at our stage in the company, to be dead focused on driving ROI from everything that they've purchased from us thus far.
0: You mentioned the sales team uh, and, and obviously kind of being centered around marketing. I'm intrigued to hear how you look to harmonize the sales and the marketing team. Often there's a an element of friction. How do you look to create a sense of uh, togetherness between the two?
1: Yeah, so I think it's uh, it's in two ways. One is, um, you know, at, at the high level of how do you position the company in a way that makes sense to the customer, right? And you touched on the brand earlier as an example. You know, we spent three or four months really trying to figure out, you know, how to describe Blue Core in one sentence, especially in this in this crowded market. And we care about uh, marketing uh, working in, on that and iterating on that message, uh, which then drives into our SDR team that is taking that message and bringing it to our prospects. We uh, have the marketing team work work with the sales team on how to introduce, you know, a given product into into a certain persona and in, in the organization you know we are at a place where our team is now even starting to think about organizational personas right in in some companies uh, you have one buyer that may buy all the products of blue core who's a digital marketing manager and in other companies we have five or six buyers right ranging from the director of data science to analytics Uh, so marketing really helps plot that out and give a holistic understanding at a a high level in terms of what is the customer what do they value what are their goals and and really building that into to our virtual vernacular. And then the second piece, which is more tactical, which is, hey, you know, I've, talk, I've talked to this customer several times, but it doesn't seem like they're ready to commit to BlueCore. Seems like we're missing something, right? What What is that? And monitoring our demand generation funnels and looking at where we need to figure out who the early adopters are versus who are customers that are beyond the chasm, things of that nature. So it's it's strategic at a high level in terms of who we are, what we present to the customer, and then very tactical on a metrics-driven basis at the lower end of the funnel.
0: So many things to dig into there, I have to say. But I, I am intrigued. You said about the different buying personas. I'm intrigued with the differing persona. How does that affect the sales cycle, have you seen? And and is there anything you do to try and speed it up or make it more efficient?
1: Yeah. And I think uh, two different ways we see that. One is... I'm a big fan of the, the cross and the chasm, uh, Jeffrey Moore's uh, thoughts on different personas, right? Uh, where, where he talks about, and I think, you know, we are in that phase where we grew extremely fast and we continue to grow, but early adopters bought our product completely differently than uh, who's buying them today, right? And, uh, and just to give you an example, our early adopters were folks who, you know, did everything to get us on the on the stack because they were motivated to take risks and drive an outcome, even if it meant risking their careers. And uh, the way you communicate with them is different than, you know, the other set of customers that need their CMO to have a full buy-in. They need to get their IT teams to buy in before they put any code up on the site. There's a even for the same type of customer, based on what the organizational culture is, there's different groups of people that have to be brought in. And where we, you know, when we started recognizing recognize no, that um, we started to think about the profile of our, our sales team. We started to think about, uh, you know, we have um, a strategic sales team that knows how to have these long, deep conversations uh, with different people in the organization. Sometimes we bring our product uh, and data science engineers into, into the mix as well, because, you know, if you're if you're somebody like an Under Armour, you got to get buy-in all the way from the people who are on the data analytics side, right? Um, and that's a very different conversation. So, uh, once you have a few of these conversations, you can really map them out into, into buyer personas, and then you can also map organizational personas, which we're in the process of doing, right? As an example, is this a company that is has laser-thin margins um, and has a heavy focus on marketing operations? Well the way they're going to make decisions uh, are going to be fundamentally different. We can add value uh, in so many different ways, but let's be laser focused about the conversations we're going to have and also planning for who needs to be in the room before we get to a later stage in sale. In, in some cases, we pull back on some sales because we know that it can be far more effective if we wait for a couple more months. Uh, that leads to a much stickier, more valuable sale for both both
0: for us and both for them. So You said about the buying personas changing over time. What was the challenges then in transitioning? Not away, but expanding out of the traditional and first customer base and customer segment towards the much larger space that you operate in now. Were there any challenges in making that transition? Uh, yes, there's lots
1: of there's challenges, I think. Um, and just to give you some. And and part of it is, uh, you know, changing your habits. Right? It's amazing how how many habits can form inside of an organization when you when you achieve early success and and you want to keep doing things a certain way. As an example, in the second year of the business, we all of our sales were done over the phone. Almost all of our sales were done over the phone on a thirty-minute to forty-five-minute meeting. Up up until our second year of business one out of every three phone calls would convert into a contract. And we thought that was because we were awesome, right? We were just like, yeah, hey, this is great. Like, this is amazing. We're going to grow, and this is uh, this is how we're going to grow forever. And uh, turns out that's not the case. So we were just dealing with early adopters who made decisions extremely fast. We didn't need to really do much discovery on these customers. They had... Pretty, they had a pretty strong intent about the outcome, which, knock on wood, we got lucky and we had a value proposition that matched exactly with that. And that was the process that we did. Now, that didn't work once we crossed 200 customers or it definitely didn't have the same efficacy. Uh, so we had to sit down and, you know, once he saw the, the conversion rates slow down, get to sit down and go, wait, there's nothing fundamentally different about the business the business still needs blue core from our perspective because everyone needs to do automated marketing and here's why they should be t- combining the product catalog with customer data like all of those things stay true so we're like why is uh, the conversions different and then you sit down and you figure out like well it's it's what jeffrey moore said right like the early adopters want best of breed and you know the pragmatists want uh, industry standard which means the way we communicate the way we think about how our products integrate with the rest of the ecosystem the way we need to do reference calls for them so that they can get validation is all different and and we're
0: still working through that it's and i think it'll be a process that goes on for this year still learning and then i do want to touch on one final thing before we dive into a quick fire and that's you said about the importance of demand gen there and jason lemkin always tells me about the importance of in terms of structuring the team hiring a vp of demand gen have you found this and at what stage did you hire a vp of demand gen
1: yeah, we have a senior manager of demand gen right now and that person came on board uh about 4 months ago. Okay. Uh, Amy, she's she's awesome and uh, she reports into into our head of marketing. To be honest, we did uh, our first demand generation was was pretty old school. We we had uh, our SDR team that was just you know doing outbound right uh we just sheer muscle just getting in front of accounts uh using the existing value proposition we had uh the second level was we said hey we're going to sell to enterprise customers we just landed uh, events and events still do extremely well for us and uh we did that to drive our early growth and it was about two and a half years into the business after launch that we said hey we need we need to bring in somebody that um in that function.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with Jason. If I were doing this again, I would, I would be bringing them in way sooner. But I do want to dive into a quick fire and we call it the 60 seconds faster. So I say a short statement and then you give me your thoughts in 60 seconds. How does that sound? Sounds great. I'll try to stay in 60. So New York, where you're based, what are the advantages and then the disadvantages? You can have a minute for each. So the advantages first.
1: Advantages, uh, we are based in New York City on the Lower East Side, which is a place where uh, when, when, when we when people hang out. Uh, they have hazy memories from long nights. Uh, so, it's an awesome place to have a startup office. Um, so, that's an advantage. There's a lot of hustle in New York uh, where you can get very talents from engineering, but also, you know, we even have a rotational program uh, for management consultants and investment bankers where that are trying to get into startups but don't know how. So, you get this mix of people that have really, really high energy. And I think uh, the best thing that's come for us is how we were able to tie our mission uh, which is to empower commerce organizations to discover their best customers to a city, which is, you know, one of the biggest retail capitals in, in, in the world. So those are the advantages. Disadvantages, as you know, a lot of uh, once you hit uh, initial traction and get into, into the scaling phase post, you know, 10 million in run rate, there's not that many people who've seen it here in New York and then that talent base is still growing. So I'd say that's still the biggest challenge hiring on uh, hiring folks who've seen, the uh, scene the game once, I, I could really use those here. What do you know now that you wish you'd known when you started? Oh, so many, so many things. I'm trying to figure out where to start. Yeah, I'd say, I'd say two things. Up, uh, one is one actually goes back to to the whole question around the brand and the marketing i uh, i remember reading jason lemkin's blog where he kept talking about can't hire marketing early enough right and uh, as an engineer who really didn't understand the the software buying cycle from you know when a customer discovers your content to when they become aware that you know they have a need that you can fill and you know building the brand value proposition around that and building our use cases and outcomes around that like i i really didn't understand that at all uh which Caused us to bring in marketing later in the game than than I would have. I think that's one. And then the second one, uh, you know, we 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 went from twenty to sixty to one hundred twenty people in two years. So twenty to sixteen a year, and then sixty to one hundred twenty. And I'm a first time manager, you know, and so are uh, my co founders. And uh, today we we have a, a balanced team of executives. But I wish I'd known the organizational challenges that
0: would come away with that kind of growth and, and hired some of those VPs even sooner. And then, what's your favorite SaaS reading material? And what's the must-read for you when it comes in. It's, it's a plug for
1: Jason Lumpkin. I, I read Saster and uh, the other one is Tom Tunga's, uh, if I'm pronouncing his name right, uh, his, his blog.
0: It's, it's one of my favorites. Yeah, no, absolutely. Talk about data-driven approach. Uh, fantastic email newsletter. I read it every day. But I do want to finish, and moving away from the quickfire, on, as you said there, the growth from, from over 30 to 60 and then 60 to 120. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on this scaling and how you view the internal structures of a company as you try transition into different points of the scaling process?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a good one, and uh, it's one that I'm spending a lot of time thinking about and uh, trying to learn from people who've, who've been through this game. Uh, you know, we, we recently brought on a COO who has seen the scale from uh, Oracle Data Cloud and Data Logics before that, where he saw the scale from 100 to, to a few hundreds of people. Uh, I think two things there. One is making sure that the organizational structure is going to change You know, probably once every six six to nine months, if not, if not more. So part of it is making sure that we have a culture that understands that we are in the business of change and you know our job is to manage that change for our customers so that we can go do new, exciting things and innovate. That's one part of it. Uh, and then the second piece of it, uh, I'm reading this awesome book by Fred Kaufman called Conscious Business, uh, another great read, which talks about, you know, once you once you cross a certain size and you have a company, which is essentially a system that is a collection of other subsystems, you get to this point where, you know, certain teams start optimizing for their goals versus the company goals. And you really have to be conscious of that. Fred Kaufman's uh, thesis is that uh, an organization is not an inherently great way. To get work done but it is the best way to get work done so as a startup all you need to be focused on is to make sure that you do it better than your competition and you will win and uh, the way you do that is by raising this shared level of consciousness around your organization that hey while we're growing and while we're scaling It's all about what we do next, and it's all about sub-optimizing our personal goals so that we can all have great outcomes for the company and our customers.
0: Well, Fires, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show and hear the incredible scaling journey of Bluecore. I look tremendously forward to seeing it continue in the future. But thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Harry. It was a pleasure.
0: And a huge hand to fires for giving up his time today stay to come on the show, and a big thank you to Jason Lemkin for making the intro today, without which the episode would not have been possible. And I'd also like to say, if you'd like to see more from us and behind the scenes at SASTA, then you can follow me at hstebbings with two Bs on Snapchat, or you can follow the main man, Jason Lemkin, at Jason LK on Twitter. But before we leave you today, do not forget to check out Algolia. Now, Algolia is the robust search API that allows developers to integrate lightning-fast typo-tolerant search into their SAS product. Out of- the box, Algolia offers developers a powerful platform for building great search experiences by owning the entire stack from engine to server. Algolia free up development teams to focus on adding intuitive search that delights users. This is perfect for existing search teams looking to spend less time on maintenance and infrastructure management and more time on user experience. And for smaller SaaS teams, Algolia is a great investment on top of your existing stack that requires no specialist engineers. And you can learn more about how Algolia helps SaaS scale search, because now SaaS to podcast listeners can get one month free at algolia.com forward slash saster with the coupon code sasta podcast as always i so appreciate all your support and i look very forward to bringing you monday's episode